Welcome to another episode of EW's Game of Thrones podcast. I am James Hibbard here with Darren Franich, and we're going to be talking today about so many things in Blood of My Blood. There is a lot to figure out, like... Why is Tommen such a total wimp? How weird is it that we're actually gaining Stark family members this season instead of losing them? How much motivation do Dothraki need exactly? And could an entire episode be built around Gilly looking surprised and amazed by ordinary things? I think so. A lot to discuss, a lot to unpack. Though I guess one headline here, Darren, is nobody died this episode, which is very unusual and strange. Uh, were you happy or disappointed by the lack of blood in Blood of My Blood? I feel a little bit like Gilly right now, James, in that I am surprised and amazed by an episode of television where nobody died. I am I am very surprised by the most ordinary thing on television. Um, I, I really like this episode. I remember on a previous podcast, we were talking about going back and watching you know the very earliest episodes of Game of Thrones, which had a very different feel only because you know there, there was sort of less crazy plot turns, less people dying. you know you, you, you could spend more time with the characters. And this kind of felt like that to me. And, you know, we got to spend so much time hanging out with Arya, and she was not getting hit in the face every two seconds. It's been two seasons of her across the sea, getting punched by people and, and getting the kind of Batman Begins treatment. And I found, like, getting to spend an hour or, you know, however long with Maisie Williams just sort of talking to people and watching people was the most fun that I've had with Arya since, like, season four, probably. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously we have some big stuff to get to this episode, but I, I do want to talk about that because I, uh, I, I love that entire sequence. And what was really impressive to me was that Maisie Williams just rocked every scene she was in despite not having a whole lot to do. She was mainly just reacting to things. But watching her reactions and just the little moments, like when she's walking backstage at the play and you see her glance at the uh, Ned Stark dummy prop head you know, lying there off to the side, the entire sequence really brought out her humanity. And it had a few different ways of doing that. And I think what was so effective about that is then you have the contrast where it jumps to, you know, the cold, dreary, face cutting, you know, death cult of the House of Black and White. And you really realize right when the character really realizes it, that she doesn't belong there. You know, she's kind of done with them and we're kind of done with them, too. And I think that that juxtaposition of, of, of her with the actors and then going back to, to, to the cold, you know, mortuary of the faceless man and, uh, you know, the smirky waif just really brought that home. Yeah, and, you know, anyone who's read uh, the books for A Song of Ice and Fire know that, like, you know, one of George R. R. Martin's many talents, along with, you know, the ability to create an entire cosmology seemingly, like, out of his head, is that, you know, no one is better at conjuring up a character and immediately kind of making you care about them and feel like they're important, even in the context of a huge fantasy novel. Like, uh, one of my favorite chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire is the epilogue of Storm of Swords, where you meet just, like, this totally random son or nephew or some relation to Walder Frey and what happens to him in, in that short span of time you sort of simultaneously feel for him and you're also you know you're also somewhat quite fearful for him 
with this episode when we get Arya talking to the actress who's playing Cersei and just you know in that little scene you learn a lot about like that actress and her character and where she comes from and she and Arya have that great conversation that I do want to like dig in their conversation which I love in so many ways feels very central to the theme of this season in a way because you know it's it's literally Arya talking to an actress who plays a Lannister saying like you know sort of pull a Kobayashi Maru change the rules of this game change your dialogue like you know you are not locked into this story you can really kind of like somehow adapt yourself and I, I find it just so remarkable that while she's telling that to fake Cersei real Cersei over across the sea is perhaps having a, a similar kind of psychological realization so I I dug all of that I mean I, I'm sort of hoping that Arya will run away with this theater troupe now I'm not sure if that's where we're going but like I, I, I like all those characters so much. I love fake Tyrion. I, I love, you know, Richard E. Grant throwing his incredible kind of like, you know, showrunner hissy fit. Like, <laughs> I'm the guy who, who who does the writing on this show, and I say if if, if, if Ned Stark is a goon, then he's a goon. And I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed all of that. And I have been so ready for someone to firebomb the Faceless Man headquarters for a long time now. And the fact that Arya finally realized it, it just feels great that Arya is acting like Arya again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, you know, you're talking about the advice she was uh, giving Lady Crane, the actress. That's also the advice that she should be taking herself. And and I, I think that by giving her that advice, she she's sort of pushing herself toward, towards towards that the, her own decision. And it's just sort of fascinating that she's in this position of empathizing with Cersei, one of the top people on 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 her death list. It, you know, because we've talked on this podcast before how we really want to see a scene with Arya doing a showdown with uh, Cersei at some point. And you wonder how this, because it would have to, to some extent, you know, influence the way that the outcome of that scene and the way she reacts to her. It's so funny because James, again, to, to, to shout out praise as we always do for Maisie Williams, her reactions to fake Joffrey's death scene were hilarious. I love that she was kind of like the one person giggling while everybody around <laughs> her was sort of like freaking out. But then I also loved how her watching fake Cersei experiencing these emotions over Joffrey's death, she's empathizing with the actress because maybe she's realizing, oh, I don't want to kill this person. There's some element there, though, of also being like, oh, is is she also in this moment kind of pondering the fact that Cersei has now experienced the same, you know, wound that Arya experienced, you know, the horrible loss of a family member right in front of you. So I, I'm really intrigued by all of that stuff. And yeah, you know, to your point again, James, when we think about the end game of Thrones, is the end game, you know, a person who has sought vengeance for so long finally getting that vengeance? Or is the end game that person, Arya in this case, maybe developing a greater appreciation and knowledge for the fact that, you know, the person that, that she thought was her enemy maybe wasn't her enemy, or maybe she was just as messed up as, as anybody else was? I would happily have more episodes of Arya experiencing epiphanies while watching plays. So <laughs> if, there's, if there's more of that coming, I would be very excited for right. that. The faceless man thing, James, is one of those plot lines where. I, I I do feel that because it was such a big part of the character's arc in the books, they definitely felt the need to follow through on it. And you know, certainly in terms of the production design, in terms of time given to it, we've seen we've seen it spent so much time with the faceless men. What are your kind of like hopes for? how we wrap up that storyline. I mean, like, are you thinking, is that something we'll leave behind this season? Will, will, will there be, I mean, we sort of saw Arya 
I was almost kind of like comparing the last time we saw her, it was sort of like Tony Soprano in the second to last episode of Sopranos where he's like falling asleep with a, like AK-47 in his bed. Like it seems like she certainly seems ready for something to come her way. And it seems like something is coming her way, namely Face Punch Girl or whatever whatever her actual name is. <laughs> <laughs> Face Punch Girl. Yeah, we're definitely being set up for a showdown between Arya and the Waif. Everything we're wondering presumably depends on the outcome of that. Yeah. It made me realize, too, James, that, you know, so much about this season, I think, like after last season was for a lot of people so depressing and so nihilistic, uh, which is part of the reason why I liked it so much. This season, it really feels as if the show is like entering this phase of being all about like the possibility of things to look forward to and new beginnings. And just, you know, again, seeing Arya acting so much like herself, except now sort of having been empowered by this face cult League of Shadows group of zealots. I, it got me very excited about what could happen to Arya next season when she is kind of back among, you know, groups of people who we actually care about. So should we shift north, James? Or across the Narrow Sea or yeah. Let's cross the Narrow Sea in in Saladar San's pirate ship and then uh, ride up north uh, on the back of, of Hodor uh, <laughs> R.I.P. So usually with Game of Thrones, the beginning of an episode, and you know, s- s- someone will obviously find a-, a-, a counterexample to this, I feel like it usually starts with some amount of time having passed, whether it's like a night or a day or a couple of days. I liked how we were thrown right in to pretty much where we left off last episode with Mira kind of, uh, you know, pulling Bran away. And uh, Bran apparently, uh, you know, getting this sort of like five-minute recap of the entire history of Westeros inside of his head. (laughs) Right, like one of those YouTube supercut videos where it's like five seasons of Game of Thrones in five minutes. Yeah, but there was a little extra bit thrown in there that uh, I don't think even the hardcore fans were predicting was coming. And we got to finally see the Mad King and Jamie assassinating the Mad King and the Mad King freaking out and, and, and ordering uh, the city to be burned burn them all. He was screaming. I was like flipping out. Best moment of the season as, as far as I'm concerned. Next to the King's Moot, that was it for me. Um, there's so much to dig into there because, I mean, it seems as if like the issue right now is that Bran is kind of having one of those like, um, you know, Jean Grey pre-Dark Phoenix moments. Like, like he, he has so much power and doesn't quite know how to kind of experience all this. Like, I thought for a second his eyes would open up and he would sort of say, like, I know everything, but clearly that's not the case. (laughs) But were you struck by the fact that, you know, among the many things he saw, and, you know, we kind of got the mini clip show, you know, his, his father dying, all this stuff. It was interesting to me that the show specifically went out of its way to establish that he now has seen the death of the Mad King. Because, of course, the person who killed the Mad King and maybe saved, you know, King's Landing and saved hundreds of, of thousands of people was Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister, who ruined Bran's life all the way back in the pilot. And I, I wonder if, you know, again, if much like with Arya kind of experiencing some level of empathy for someone she doesn't like, I wonder if that is kind of part of Bran's training in a way, is coming to sort of see that, oh, like, this person who, as far as he's concerned, is probably, like, the greatest villain in in the show, he himself had done something heroic back in the day. Yeah, you're thinking there is mirroring my own, because not only is Bran being put in a position to empathize with one of the show's quote-unquote villains, but also, you have to ask yourself, why is he being shown this about that character? And is that foreshadowing of some kind of future meeting? And so that's, that's the other thing I'm sort of wondering. 
Now, uh, you know, whatever is happening to Bronn and the fact that he is now the three-eyed raven, this is all still somewhat confusing. But we met someone else last night, James, and I almost don't know where, where to begin because <laughs> that's a character who, if you've read the books, you've been waiting for him in a lot of different ways. And even so, like, his first appearance was a depth charge in the sort of fandom of the show. Now, James, we all know that, uh, you know, death and resurrection comes in threes. As you've pointed out, the show has clearly decided that even if we don't get to stuff in the order of the books, we will get to stuff eventually. We've had one Stark come back to life, start of the season. We've had one Stark come back to life, middle of this season. It seems to me like maybe there might be another Stark coming back to life at the end of this season. And did you notice there was a clear reference for the first time in three seasons to... Why are you bringing this up? Because you know all I do is get yelled at by Twitter, you know, whenever I bring up my opinions on this subject. Because here's the thing. You know, I love George R. R. Martin's books. I am evangelical about A Storm of Swords. But I have just never been a fan of the certain L.S. character Uh. that you're referring to. Listeners, don't hate me if you read the books and you're a huge Lady Stoneheart fan. Uh, but my feeling is, is that it was a misstep. It weakens the impact of the most amazing, notorious chapter in the books, The Red Wedding. It felt like Martin wasn't quite sure what to do with that character in those scenes. There are times you want to play the resurrection card, and I think it was done to great effect with Jon Snow. But in terms of Lady Stoneheart, it just it, to me, it just never worked. It always seemed kind of vaguely disappointing somehow. And I know I am in the minority on that, and I know people yell at me about that, so I hate to even say it. First of all, no one should ever yell at you for anything, James. You know Westeros probably better than the vast majority of, 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 of people out there. And, I mean, you know, it's definitely a crazy story turn. Um, and people out there either know exactly what we're talking about or just like, who the heck is L.S. and Lady Stoneheart? The thing that I always liked about it was that whereas our two current resurrected Starks uh, seem to have been brought back as far as we can tell essentially the same person if not even sort of more heroic and more 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 romantic in a way you know they 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 no longer are tied to the sort of sad snowy monastic life of the Night's Watch I've always been very intrigued by the fact that Lady Stoneheart in that character's resurrected form is a much darker pet cemetery fied version of that character. You know what I mean? Like, you know, George R. R. Martin, I think, is first and foremost to say that resurrecting characters is maybe not the best idea. He's talked a lot about how Gandalf's resurrection in Lord of the Rings always rubbed him the wrong way. And I love Lord of the Rings, but once you see what he has to say, you are kind of like, oh yeah, like, I I do get that. Like, Gandalf the White is a much less interesting character than, uh, you know, Gandalf the Grey. And I I feel like Lady Stoneheart is kind of his attempt to do like what if Gandalf came back and he was like not a nicer version of himself like he had been touched by what happened to him intellectually I agree with everything you're saying it's just the emotion I felt when I hit that epilogue that that you're mentioning earlier I was like oh no 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 don't do that don't 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 no don't take it back (laughs) don't do that well let's 
head over to a new location that we haven't been to before, Horn Hill, which is very green, as uh, Gilly was uh, amazed by. Gilly was pretty much amazed by everything, which was like my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of of, uh, of this whole guess who's coming to dinner uh, uh, sequence. I mean, she was, you know, silverware, clothes, two-story houses. You know, she was just like in a constant state of like shock and amazement. Uh, you know, um, Sam's uh, lovely sister asked, oh, what's your favorite color dress? And she just gawked at her like, you mean there's a colors other than burlap that you can wear? <laughs> I didn't even know that. And so um, I really enjoyed the fact that uh, at the very start of that sequence, Sam took a moment to talk about all the different trees that you get as you go further south, like elm trees and poplar trees and beech trees. You know, foliage is one of my favorite parts of reading A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> so I was very happy to get some of that uh, situated. Um, it's great to see that his dad is basically the principal from Back to the Future, just a very unhappy looking guy who just seems really disappointed quite generally with everybody. You're a slacker and you've always been a slacker. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> I, I found everything about the scene delightful to a point. It was sort of interesting though, James. I mean, like, so I, you know, love the kind of scene setting at Sam's house. And, you know, I, I did sort of really appreciate the fact that even though he has done so many heroic things in his home, surrounded by his brother is this sort of golden god looking dude uh, who was literally kind of playing a golden god on Unreal recently. Um, you know, his dad is just such an imposing figure. You did get the sense that even despite everything he's seen, this is still the scariest place that he's ever been. It, it was strange to me because like, I, I sort of thought that the point of you know, all of this stuff was to say, like, yet again, Sam has had to sort of not be the heroic figure in order to, like, accomplish something heroic. Like, you know, he'll be the sort of diminished person if it means that Gilly and young Sam will get to, like, you know, grow up in a nice place. Obviously, on some gut level, I liked Sam coming back for them, but it, it did make the whole thing seem a little like it was a bit of a deviation in some ways. You, you know, like, it was just sort of like, okay, like, I get it. Like, now they're back together, and now I guess they're they're back on the road to the Citadel. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't quite have the same power that I thought it was going to have. You know, what I liked about it is there's so much in Game of Thrones that is epic that you can't really relate to. You can't really relate to like, oh, the the family member got converted by the children of the forest in this this inhuman figure that kills off um, ice zombies. And you can't really relate to a girl on a dragon who's who's giving a speech. But you can relate to this and it's it's like it's basically this the familiar story of like like the black sheep son and he's like home from college you know on like a weekend break and he's got his girlfriend who his dad disapproves of you know it's it's a very dramatically relatable uh sequence and you're right he does He's not necessarily the hero you want. He's the hero you need. He's the wimp knight, you know, in this, you know, where where he has to, like, be a person who doesn't stand up to his dad in order to try and, and keep them safe. And even if that was the smart move, that would be intensely difficult for him, you know, because he's, like, poking at all these these open childhood wounds that that, that he has. But he does he does steal, you know, dad's awesome sword. So, you know, he does get that in. Sword was awesome. And, you know... 
to your point, James, which I think is quite accurate, as we get deeper and deeper into the show and as, you know, the the Stark characters just become, you know, more and more these sort of resurrected, uh, you know, transformed, high noble icons that, you know, seem to symbolize, like, whole nations in, in, in every move they make. I, I do appreciate that, you know, we have not lost sight of Sam. I mean, like, you know, he's even a character who, when we first meet him, he just seems so pitiful next to, you know, everyone else in the Night's Watch and all these sort of grand personalities. And I do think you're right. Like, it's interesting that everything that happens to him, it's deeply relatable. And, you know, all of his struggles are deeply relatable. He is not currently in the process of making war on anyone. He's just sort of trying to do what is best for his friends, what is best for, you know, the woman he loves. So I, I you know, kind of appreciate all of that. I, I get the sense that we may not see much more of him and Gilly this season. And, and I, 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 I hope that we do. I, I hope that I get surprised because I always enjoy when the show kind of checks in with them. I just like it when we see more cool mansions in Westeros. Like I, <laughs> I always kind of like, I mean, you know, we talk so much about the great houses, but, you know, there are houses like the Tarleys who are just kind of, you know, they're doing pretty well. But, you know, clearly they're they're struggling to keep up with the Lannisters a, a little bit. I'm down for a Horn Hill edition of Downton Abbey where it's like Gilly <laughs> w- works in the kitchens and she's part, part, of, part of the servant class. And then you have like the Tarleys and the, their whole thing going on. And, she, and she's like, oh, my God, you... you 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 can keep meat for a week. What is this? You know, she's <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm all for that. We should shift over to King's Landing, where just kind of all the things happened all at once with all the King's Landing uh, people, uh, which I very much appreciated. Um, also appreciated huge master shot of King's Landing that we got with the High Sparrow sort of looking down onto the Grand Courtyard and off into the distance. I have like ancestors who hailed from the countryside around Dubrovnik. Little known fact is that Game of Thrones, like King's Landing, a lot of it is Dubrovnik, but it's basically like, what if Dubrovnik was was the biggest and awesomest city on the face of the planet. <laughs> right. A lot of the King's Landing scenes have been shot in Old Town there. And it's amazing because if you go there, it looks exactly like King's Landing. I mean, not in terms of the farthest pull away shot, but if you just look you know, at, at, the, at the city core of it, you have to expect to see the City Watch gold cloaks marching past the gelato sands, you know, <laughs> you know as the tourists gather. Don't give them any idea, James, because they, they're big into tourists there. So, you know, I, I would not put it past them to uh, have, like, you know, s- some special week each year where uh, it, it becomes King's Landing. Um, James, I am so intrigued by Marjorie Terrell right now because I, I honestly cannot tell to what extent... She is aware of everything that is happening, to what extent she is puppet mastering, and to to what extent she is being puppeted. She's the linchpin of so much stuff right now, and I find that so interesting. (laughs) The assumption that I was making while watching it is that she isn't so much puppet mastering as just trying to survive and trying to save her brother and is playing along she's just she's just too blazingly smart you know to 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 buy as like a total brainwash victim given what we've seen at least so far if there's like lots of scenes of her being like waterboarded or something over time and like bonding with septonella or something you know then i i might have thought that but you know i feel like to me, what I, I'm, I really admired about this is that we can now step back and like that 
far shot of the city where we see a far shot uh, metaphorically speaking, of the High Sparrow's plan this season and what he's been up to. You know, just tortured the hell out of Sir Loras, then put Sir Loras with Marjorie, and and so Sir Loras convinced Marjorie to play along, and then Marjorie convinced Tommen to play along, and once you have Tommen, you have the king, and basically checkmated the Lannisters and got his big power play, this uh, this uh, unification of church and state, of, of the crown and the faith militant, leaving the Lannisters just like slack-jawed and horrified of what just happened. And, you know, it might have been avoided had they looped in Tommen on their plan because, you know, their, their, their entire plan, one of the parts of it was, well, let's just leave Tommen out of this. But they didn't really think that, well, OK, well, if we leave the king out of this, the king actually might do something on his own because he is, after all, king. And what he did completely kneecapped their entire strategy. Poor Tom, and he is just fortune's fool. I mean, it, it's just becoming so clear that even even when he does what seems to be the right thing, it's always the wrong thing. Um, but I, I do want to go back for a second, James, because when Tommen was talking to Marjorie, which turned out to be the most important moment of the episode because that conversation sort of led to Tommen really joining with this sort of, you know, church and state unification what Marjorie was saying was in a way somewhat convincing. She was talking a lot about how, you know, I I wasn't good. I was very good at appearing good. And you really remember like those incredible glory days of the Marjorie-Cersei feud when Marjorie was just being seen to do all these things that, you know, almost kind of like our a really good kind of like pro Tyrell marketing or, you know, really, really good PR for the Tyrells. Whereas, you know, PR is not something that the Lannisters have ever done. Like, you know, they'll, they will, they will pay for armies, but they will not pay for like media professionals. Like to Tyrells just seem to kind of understand implicitly how to kind of set themselves up as these sort of popular figures. So on one hand, it was interesting hearing her say, like, I wasn't really doing stuff with the goodness of my own heart and yada, yada, yada. At the same time, I was so struck by the fact that she was about to have a moment absolutely identical to what happened to Cersei at the end of last season. And you compare what happened to Cersei and how it was just an absolute low point and, you know, a moment of, of just debasing tragedy for that character. The fact that w- when Marjorie was about to take her walk, what wound up happening not only kind of confirmed her popularity, when she was at her low point, suddenly people were cheering for her again. It also kneecapped both the Lannisters and, like, her own sort of family. I I found that fascinating. And, you know, if she is, to a certain extent, very cannily using all this for her own sort of good, then then it's it's turning out quite well. (laughs) And, of course, in the middle of all that, we can't not mention that awesome... Jamie Lannister horse move because (laughs) I was just like, that is very cool. When he gallops up the steps, you know, just simply to to give the high sparrow a a, a more stern glare. That was one of the coolest stunts that we've seen on the show. And my guess is, I don't know, but my guess is it was done by a stuntman and then they did the CGI head swap because that's like, that's, that's a very dangerous move. Horse stuff is, 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 is always considered dangerous and running up those steps like that. But man, it worked. Uh, it, 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 you know, and it made me want to see more of Jamie Lannister 
an aggressive, uh, heroic mode too. Uh, you know, we got a little like taste of that and we, we feel his frustration there because we want to see him kicking ass as well. And he so badly wants, you know, after spending a few, you know, couple seasons, you know, very much, uh, injured and down on himself, you know, you know, we want to see him come roaring back and, uh, and kick ass again. And we, you know, who knows, we might get that, you know, with this, with this thing coming at uh, river run. I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, because, uh, you know, again, like this, this show, it does not miss a trick to sort of remind you about what its, like, essential precepts are. I love that Jamie Lannister, in that moment, as you're saying, James, he wants to be a heroic figure. And, of course, like, as we all know from what happened to Ned Stark, that is the wrong idea when you are dealing in matters of huge policy and of authority. And so I love that in his big heroic moment, which, yeah, just, like, that horse move is almost kind of, like, comically, you know, this sort of vision of this this hero from the cover of a fantasy novel that then he gets outmaneuvered in a totally political fashion. I just love that. I also love that because um, we got a hard push in the direction of the Riverlands and in the direction of the ancestral home of Caitlin and of, uh, you know, uh, all the other Tullys because that's where Jamie is going. Now, I I realize, James, in that moment, we talk a lot about how, you know, the show is past the books or moving past the books. I realize that the show may never actually move past the books because where Jamie is going geographically is roughly identical to where he goes in Feast for Crows. Everything around him is different in some ways. But I, I found that interesting how, again, to go back to Cold Hands, the show is kind of reincorporating some of those elements in an interesting way. I love, too, how almost kind of in the background, the show has conjured up what seems like a pretty major showdown coming our way. I mean, like, you know, the, the idea of, like, the sort of Tully remnants led by the Blackfish who, who's kind of, you know, taken back their house. And now you have, like, the phrase on one side with Captive Ed Buer and Jamie going up there to lead the armies. Like, that, that's all really, that's all interesting. And and as you said, James, great to think of him kind of, like, actually getting out there leading, you know, like, like, like an army and sort of being in charge in, in that way. Yeah, well, and, of course, there's also another character going to the Riverlands, too, because Sansa Stark sent Brienne to Riverrun as well to enlist them to their side. So you have the phrase going to Riverrun, you have Jamie Lannister going to Riverrun, and you have Brienne going to Riverrun, and they all have their own agendas. Say, James, you know who else is in Riverrun is uh, some fellows by the name of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Oh, my God. You would bring up the Brotherhood Without Banners. <laughs> Let's actually go into the trivia question now, and then we'll be good for another week. And, you know, next episode is The Broken Man, which there's a lot of fan theory about. So that should be interesting. The Broken Man, uh, something, something, uh, Lady Stoneheart. No, I'm I'm, uh, just kidding. Um, (laughs) Last week's trivia question uh, asked which character who's still alive and who's a member of one of the great houses of Westeros has been seen on both major continents of the known world. A uh, lot of answers sent in, like Jorah the Andal and Davos Seaworth and Marin Trant. Unfortunately, none of those people are members of the great houses of Westeros. Only character who passes all of those qualifications is Mace Terrell. Your new trivia question. Speaking of characters that we saw in this week's episode, uh, we had a return visit from Edmure Tully, last seen uh, at the Red Wedding getting married and presumably not having a great honeymoon. Uh, Edmure Tully, as we all know, is played by British actor Tobias Menzies. 
Now, we all know that Tobias Menzies played Brutus on Rome, uh, the greatest uh, pre-Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones-ish show that HBO ever made. He is not the first Rome actor to make the jump to Game of Thrones. You also have uh, Indira Varma, who is uh, currently down in Dorne doing God knows what. More importantly, you had uh, Ciaran Hines, who played Mance Raider, uh, the king beyond the wall. Now, Mance was a king who ascended to his throne without the benefit of a father who was already king. Mance always said this was, you know, what made him different, what made him cool. He wasn't a king like the rest of them, James. He was a hip, democratic king. But actually, that's become quite common in Westeros. It's somewhat of a rarity now to see a king who ascends to a throne previously held by his father. So this week's trivia question, who was the last king who appeared on the show as of this week's episode, Blood of My Blood, who was the biological son of another king. I'll say it again. Who was the last king to appear on Game of Thrones who was the biological son of another king? Send in your answers to gotpodcast at ew.com. Uh, we will do a random drawing of the correct answers, and whoever is correct will win an exciting Game of Thrones-related prize. Listeners out there, if you have any questions or concerns or analytical points or you want to just rap about how cool Dubrovnik is, uh, you can email James and I at gotpodcast at ew.com. James is on Twitter at James Hibbard. I'm on Twitter at Darren Franich. We will see you next week to talk more about Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones.